welcome everybody back to the Roycast, uh, the world's only podcast about the life and work of uh, beloved actor Deep Roy. Uh, today we are also talking about the show Succession. We are joined, as always, uh, by my co-host Kate. Hey, everyone. And Gabby. Hello. Good evening. Afternoon. <laughs> and to <laughs> and to discuss the show's eighth episode, Prague. Uh, we are joined uh, by one of our neighbors to the north. Uh, please say hello to Cam. Hi, everyone. Or say hello to Cam, or say, or Cam says hello. <laughs> Welcome, Cam. Because I think that I did the opposite of what you said. <laughs> yeah, if you, if you could just say your catchphrase, that would be great here. Uh, my catchphrase is... Uh, uh, we the I North. focus group. Usually... We, oh, we the North, of course. <laughs> usually just yeah. go with it's clobbering time it's clobbering yeah it's uh he stay <laughs> he stay is my catchphrase that's a which good is one. which is uh we'll know by the time this episode comes out if Kawhi is staying or not so this could look prescient uh or it could look very embarrassing for me but when like you have a world champion? champion it's incredible i was just gonna say when you have a championship nothing can embarrass you uh so if you don't stay doesn't matter Anyway, this is a podcast about uh, an HBO show. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. I'm ready to talk Kawhi like all day. Yeah, right? we can we can do a bonus episode where we talk about <laughs> uh, the cap ramifications of keeping Kawhi and Danny Green on uh, two plus one deals <laughs> if we <laughs> if we want to get into it. Boardman love Canada. Yeah, boardman. And uh, speaking of boardmen, uh, in this episode, Kendall is removed from the board. <laughs> no, that's, uh, that's, that's what is it? Episode six where he gets yeah. picked up. Anyway, that's terrible. Anyway, I've board. seen this show. I promise board. I've seen the show that uh, we're discussing today. Bo- boardsmen of Canada. Is that anything? Anyway, that's there's something there. I think that might be my new display name. <laughs> so cam uh why did you start watching this show and what was your kind of impression of it did we uh inspire you to start uh watching succession to keep up with all the uh the riffs and the discourse uh i started watching succession uh because kate dm'd me about it about 20 times over the course of a few weeks harassing me to watch it <laughs> same <laughs> and eventually i caved by that time i think most of the discourse uh in the group dm that originally began uh as we all watched the leftovers and has just continued uh through our our friendship yeah i, I think i missed most of the discourse about succession in the group dm but i i guess i am known as the one who like isn't that high on succession i did come around to it by the end like i think uh, the show also came around to itself. I think it really found its footing uh, only in the latter part of the season. But yeah, there's basically only three episodes I really like, but this is one of them. So that's why I'm on this episode. I'm assuming that the, the three episodes you liked were the last three. They are, yeah. It's this one and then the following two for the wedding. But yeah, the um, I, I think the show comes together in these later episodes. I think that the episode we're talking about today, Prague, uh, has the most going on conceptually as an episode of TV. There's kind of a whole uh, concept behind it of descending into this underworld and every character's nature kind of being revealed, every character's driving force 
coming out and every character's kind of tragic flaw as well. And it's there's kind of a location set piece. There's a conceptual framework uh, that the episode is really advancing for almost the entire runtime. And the next two episodes, I think, are the show at its best in terms of the dynamic of the characters together, in terms of what makes the show funny, in terms of what makes the characters pop. And I think the the plotting and pacing and moving between the storylines is also much better in those final two episodes than it is at, at other points in the series. Yeah, so I think I would definitely... I would definitely agree in the sense that, you know, as I, th- I think I've come around on, I think on my initial run through, I was really high on, I think, episode nine in particular. And then, you know, these last three, I have all kind of risen in my estimation over time. Um, but I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about the issues you had maybe with the show before this. I don't know if you had specific issues or maybe just felt that things didn't quite click the way they did towards the end. Yeah, I think there's a few few aspects of it for me. One is that like I'm not even Veep, I'm not super high on like shows that are just kind of like people yelling at each other and and being mad at their family or their coworkers just don't hold a lot of of intrigue for me. Uh I also have a child brain and I need some kind of like high concept, you know, sci-fi hook or or you know just a gimmick to a show to for it to interest me i'm big on world building and that kind of thing so if a show is just about the normal the normal world kind of the newsroom or uh or you know whatever kind of procedural show but for uh business psychopaths that's that doesn't really get me on board first of all the reason i started watching it was basically kate lying and saying that it was like young pope uh, which I don't really think it is, <laughs> except in that it's a dramedy, which a lot of shows are. But yeah, so anyway, there. I just, as a viewer, was probably not the ideal audience for Succession. A lot of the drama and the humor is kind of rooted in cringe comedy and cringe drama, which I, I'm not super attracted to usually. But I think just the show on its own terms really struggled to find its footing early on it would be too hesitant in some areas too overbearing in other areas it would really hammer a character's awfulness in one episode only to shift the characterization of the character i think also there's just like elements of world building and the handle they have on how the people interact and how each person fits into this family puzzle and this business puzzle that were just shaky in the early episodes and gradually settled in but yeah, I think the, the primary thing was that the, the humor wasn't sharp enough to really entertain me all throughout. And the character, I didn't find the, the distinctiveness and the, the real connection to these characters that a lot of you have talked about having, except for Greg, who is king, who is a proper legend and steals every scene he's in. <laughs> Hmm. Yeah, I think I know what you mean when you talk about like the aspects of the world building, because the world building is something I've complimented a lot on this show. And there are particular aspects where I think they do it really well. Um, something I think that they do really well is building out the culture of like ATN as kind of a Fox News analog and showing how suffused it is with like sexual coercion and intimidation, a la Ailes's Fox News. Other elements, you know, just don't make quite as much sense, like kind of Roman's sort of ventures in Hollywood, where he was involved with some movie called like the biggest turkey in the world or whatever, which just seems like a hack joke and not something that would even be a real movie. You know, in that same episode, you had Ellen 
elements like the relationship with his girlfriend's parentheses wife question mark that we don't ever quite get much closure on um that feels like something the show didn't quite figure out but on the whole i think like the the question of it being like not high concept is kind of interesting because i think of it as a show that is you know essentially kind of one big prong of its mission is satirical and it's presenting i think a coherent sort of like snow globe universe although it's so close to our own that it feels descriptive you know rather than like in sci-fi where it would be you know something that could happen it's instead describing something that's actually happening which is kind of how i feel now like reading certain like old cyberpunk like neuromancer like oh this is just the world now and succession is kind of just the world whereas a few years ago it would have been you know maybe more recognizable as a satirical vision a la some of like the neil labute stuff that uh, mckay has talked about as being an inspiration for it I don't know if that makes sense at all. It does, yeah. I think that although there's a clear project going on with Succession, uh, I feel like it, it doesn't really do a lot with with the medium of TV to to articulate that in a way that's more interesting than just presenting it. So, yeah, when we talk about Young Pope or when we talk about the leftovers uh, that we all came together watching, uh, although obviously in the leftovers there's a clear concept going on on the level of the world building and the plot. I think in, in both those shows and even in something like justified uh, on FX uh, in justified, the kind of Elmer Leonard sensibility comes across. It's a clear kind of like version of the world. And I think there are points in, uh, in succession, like the, the Turkey joke, for example, where it could kind of deliberately stylize itself in that way to become more of a less of a straight faced parody uh, because I found it's kind of mundanity and the no selling of a lot of what was going on to just not really pop uh, in the way that I think it could if it leaned into it a little bit more. And I think that also plays into some of the, the issues you've probably talked about having with how it's presented in the advertisements. Uh, and how it seems like a, just a prestige TV thrilling business uh, game of office chairs. And, I, and so to go back to uh, Young Pope and The Leftovers, those, those shows both approach presenting you with a TV show every week in a way that's much more inventive uh, and hyper-stylized and just delighted with the fact that they're making TV every week. Whereas I find with Succession, I, I don't get that spark. Maybe in the latter episodes when it sings a little bit, but even then those are pretty subdued in terms of like what they're presenting on screen and what type of an experience it is. I think a lot of that spark kind of comes from the dialogue. I, I don't know. I think that they do sing and they are excited to write these characters and write these jokes. But again, you're kind of selling me on your vision that it doesn't, imagine itself i guess big enough yeah i mean i can't really argue with you cam because your points are on their face accurate <laughs> and it's true it's not like a high concept world building flashing lights kind of show that's that might what you're talking about like appeal to aspects of like a child brain for me the hook of succession <laughs> and i don't mean that in a negative way at all i really really don't because i'm just i for me the hook of succession is that it's it's a high drama family show. And that's the kind of material that I'm drawn to. So for me, 
I read that as the show's inherent strength that it, it's not we and we talk about this a lot that it's not really a show about business it's not really a show about tv yes like all of these elements are brought in and portrayed in different ways that i think are very tight and cohesive so you know i mean i definitely don't think that there's no spark or there's that it's subdued at all but i think a lot of that is because it's so suffused with this family drama that a lot of us really got sucked into and really just hooked us from the start. I mean, I know, Kate, that's, you know, I think that's, that's what you were getting at. That it's something that, you know, we just vibed with right away because I agree with the advertising. I think every single guest that we've had on has said the same thing about the commercials and the advertising and that we all agree that it just was not um, pubbed well at all. That it was like <laughs> prestige with <laughs> our last guest. That was so funny. Yeah, it was what Danny said that it was like a it was like a parody of prestige TV shows. Yeah. A bunch of guys in flashy right. suits yelling but at I each think, other. Yeah. So but I think what excited us about that once it started is is that um it was that that Shakespearean element of the drama and the dynamics and how the interpersonal dynamics are reflected on a broader scale through the vehicle of the business and, and the media and and all those those broader themes. So yeah, I, I think what Cam is getting at, and the thing I think I would agree with, that we I don't know if we've voiced on the show before, is that the show's project is principally a dramatic one and not a visual or aesthetic one. Most of what the show is doing is present at, I think, the script level. It's present in the dialogue and character and performance. It's not present so much in the visual strategy of the show. You know, there's a version of this and there are moments where the show kind of gets at this, but I think I would agree that it doesn't have the level often of visual sophistication that you might want it to, where there are some real kind of, uh, I think, implicit contrasts that the show has to play with that it doesn't do enough of, which is, you know, the sort of contrast between these very glossy luxurious surfaces and within this sort of infantile slapstick that's going on. Um, you get a little bit of that, I think in episode six with all like the dramatic shots of the boardroom and, you know, within is just kind of Roman cowering in his chair. And I can definitely appreciate why that started to shift for you in this episode cam, because it absolutely, I think for the first time, not just connects to this idea that the show clicks really well with, which is to lock all the characters in one location and see what happens, which is when the show is really at its best, but it connects the ideas of the script to the location and to the visuals and has a clear kind of spatial and visual strategy um, for how to show those, you know, visually and not just through the performance and dialogue. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And I think that shift in the show is partially our own familiarity with the characters at this point. There's more uh, in the viewer that the show can rely on uh, and then build upon. Uh, but I do think that, as you're talking about, the show is definitely putting all its eggs in the basket of these performances, this dialogue, this plotting, and these characters. And I think that in the latter part of the show, that does really work. Part of it's our familiarity, but I think part of it is also just the quality of the show increasing. Because I think that despite not having the aesthetic flair we talk about, despite not having the conceptual distinctness uh, that I, I often yearn for in TV, 
Uh, I think had the show been uh, very Shakespearean and very tightly plotted and very well written and the characters very arresting right from the start, I would have been on board. But I think the show is very shaky in terms of making these characters interesting, uh, in terms of how it's how the plot unfolds and, and even those elements that it's leaning on. Uh, I think it takes a while to actually be really good at those. Uh, and I am hopeful that the second season, based on the end of this season, will be that kind of show. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't super tight for me uh, in the early parts. And I think some of that goes back to what I mentioned with like Justified and the Elmore Leonard idea and, and, and what you talked about with the contrast between the slapstickness and the glossy glass surfaces of, of an office setting. Uh, I, I think that the show has opportunities to really find what it's doing and play that up and be distinctively succession. Um, and it, it isn't really certain for a lot of the first episodes, for me at least, what that is going to be uh, and how to really build that up and, and really hang its hat on that succession vibe. Yeah, and the thing that really gives me hope for that second season, because as you referenced, you know, feeling like the show was feeling more confident in welding these performances and scripts to a visual strategy. Much of that is the work of the director, Mark Mylod, who directed four episodes of this season and continues, you know, at least from like the interviews I've read and what I've heard, his name continues to come up a lot as somebody who's a, a creative force on the show. He directed the final two episodes of the season, as well as the hospital episode and lifeboats episode three. So I feel like he played a major role in kind of figuring out how to kind of weld what the scripts are doing to sort of a mise-en-scene that makes sense. I'm thinking particularly of some, well, this is an episode nine, but some of those scenes with, uh, with Shiv and Tom um, that feel really precisely blocked and coordinated to me are some of the most impressive things the show has done. Uh, but there's other reasons I think that the show often feels kind of erratic on that level, and it has to do with, um, as we've talked about, the kind of uh, Adam McKay approach of structured improvisation and always wanting to you know throw out new ideas with every setup, which is something that I've alluded to this before, but in the, the final scene of the, of, the, of the season, the final shot feels uh, somewhat arbitrary and not as purposeful as you might want. And I think it has to do with how they approached that scene in particular with Jeremy Strong not wanting to rehearse. That might be a good place for us to segue into a discussion of episode eight, Prague, which is about the bachelor party from hell. Kind of an old cliche, but I feel like this show, I feel like this episode kind of makes that the visual idea, right? That the show is doing is this idea that this bachelor party is sort of a descent into hell, that they are journeying through these subway tunnels and going to this almost subterranean place where they meet uh, Stewie, who is like, you know, uh, Charon, the a ferryman who carries them over uh, to this party <laughs> where all this, all these secrets are going to be revealed. And of course it's, it's, it's more hellish for Greg than it is for anybody else, but it's Roman is there hoping to execute a business deal that is going to get him closer to his father. You know, Stewie is there specifically to lure Kendall um, into another business deal. And Tom is there. Well, he's not really sure why he's there. Cause he thought he was going to Prague, which is the, name of the episode. <laughs> I definitely think it's interesting that the show, the episode is titled Prague. Like, 
you know, being that they didn't end up going there. And I don't have a ton of thoughts to elaborate on that, but to use that as like kind of a starting point. Do you guys have any thoughts on like why they stuck with the name Prague for, I mean, it's obviously reason. I think it's just sort of, uh, it sort of symbolizes, you know, the fact that none of them are just kind of where they want to be. Right. Okay. Uh, they're all sort of they're all sort of you know settling for something or they're discontented where they are. Uh, you know they thought they would be going to a cool European city and instead they are um, in kind of a warehouse that is decked out to look like a cool party. Um, but instead, uh, Connor is there and it's a little, <laughs> bit, a little bit underwhelming. This is also the first episode, by the way, where we uh, get to meet the Fly Guys, which is a throwaway joke, but just kind of one of my favorite details about the show. The fact that Tom's buddies, uh, who are, I guess his college buddies or something, who are coming to his bachelor party, who uh, get quite rudely left behind because Roman's like, no, there's not enough room on the party list, sorry. Just leaves them outside. Tom refers to them as the Fly Guys and then is quite torn up because he can't leave them behind because that's the fly guy code and just the fact that there's a fly guy code i think is just a wonderfully telling detail about tom's background and the kind of person he is or the kind of person he was well well, do you think that that he like that's a pre that was a pre-existing name for his friends because i thought he kind of came up with it on the spot re-watching because he's like they flew in you know they flew into the party you can't leave the fly guys behind so I had always like just based on the way that we use the term, I had always thought it was like his name for his buddies, but I think it might've just been something they came up with on the spot right there. Well, he says the fly oh, yeah. guy code and he says it with such distress. <laughs> in his voice. I, I, I thought it had to be something he was referencing that they had oh, I definitely thought with. it was like a spot on, like he thought of that at that moment. That's how I always interpreted yeah. it. Interpreted it. Tom's, da, 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 da. Tom's not that witty. <laughs> That's true. Oh man, this is a major um struggle episode. No, I was no. just gonna mention I read in an article that they did have a scene of the fly guys at a diner, but Aww. didn't include it in the final cut. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I think there's a way to reconcile these two conflicting theories of, of whether he, he already calls them the the fly guys and the fly guy code or whether it's new. And I think it's not that he's like clever enough to think of that on the spot. It's that he has so much conviction that there is this bond between these guys he barely sees anymore that he's almost just like retconning a fly guy code into their relationship, whether it's called that or not. <laughs> he has to believe that they do have this, this fraternity between each other uh, and that they're spoken or not. There's this rule between them that you can't leave the fly guys behind. Yeah, He's definitely yeah. from Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> I love that interpretation, Cam, because it gives yeah, me another excuse to connect this to The Sopranos, uh, which is another show all about people who, you know, are convinced that there is, you know, a serious code that governs their lives, which, of course, can be cast aside in a second if somebody decides they're not making enough money. So as we know from Episode 7, Austerlitz, Ken is off the wagon, and yeah. he's got a little five o'clock shadow now he's not listening to music on his headphones in the back of the limo he's just blasting it out for everyone to hear so there's definitely a tone shift kind of um and ken being now essentially 
using again. And we don't know, you know, to what degree and to what extent, um, which I think is nice. And another thing that the show does well, it doesn't, you know, have to throw any of that um, gratuitously in our faces. But we know that, that Ken is using and we can see this kind of in his um, manic energy as he is now in the sort of tech financing world on his own, as he says, being busy revolutionizing tech financing. And he has just some ridiculous corporate speak in this episode. It's another rough one for Ken, <laughs> possibly the roughest. I don't know. Yeah, he has, he has a lot more bravado in this episode. He's got the, yeah. the five o'clock shadow look, uh, which I got to say works for him. Um, yeah, and- this does. is definitely coming off of Austerlitz, which, I mean... It was like a total high point for Ken. And yeah, he has a ton more bravado because he, you know, just experienced like this emotional clarity and this emotional, like, I think, freedom coming from, you know, the using in the family kind of reunion or whatever in New Mexico, where he is finally able to take his father to task in a way there's no pretense there's no i mean it's just ken being ken being vulnerable being clear feeling who he is and telling his dad exactly how he thinks and it's so spot on and so you know coming from that i i I think that's just such a high point for ken and for me as a viewer to experience that through ken this like like i said emotional freedom and and independence that He's been, through the th- first six episodes, just been completely clinging to. And so, so yeah, he has, like, this renewed, like, energy. And sure, some of it's coming from probably the using itself. But I think it's a lot of it is coming from, like, just the level of confidence and independence, you know, where he is, you know, emotionally, energy, energy-wise, that kind of thing, spiritually. Yeah, I think I think independence, as you say, is is totally key to what uh, Ken goes through in this episode, because I think that, yeah, and the aftermath of Austerlitz in which he has this sort of drug fueled moment of clarity where he's able to sort of speak his mind and tell his father exactly what he thinks of him. What he's feeling in this episode is like, all right, I'm my own man now. I can do my own thing. And what the course of this episode tells him and what that and what that descent into that that party tells him is that he can't. He is completely trapped by his family name and there is nowhere for him to go except back to the family company. And one thing I noticed rewatching that um that scene of Ken in the car lacing up his new sneakers on the way to the pitch meeting is that. He's listening to, you know, once again, blasting rap music, but he's listening to Nobody Speak by Run the Jewels, whereas in the pilot episode, the first thing we saw of Ken was him listening to uh, Beastie Boys Open Letter to New York. And just the idea that Ken, even with his music choices, is now trying to pump himself up and be more contemporary and more hip, you know, which is exactly how he's, uh, he's uh, speaking, you know, as he tells Frank and trying to act like the oldest fucking man in the world and, you know, calling him captain fucking bebop, you know, he's, it's, it's, it's another, just, it sort of puts the lie to that moment of clarity that Ken had, because you can still see the, all the ways, the very real ways in which he's deluding himself about who he is. Yeah. I think that's exactly (laughs) what's, What's compelling about this episode, I think on both a comedy and a tragedy level, the comedy of it is that Ken is basically, 
you know, has had his emotional high point as we've talked about. And he comes out like when Toby Maguire is like Venom Spider-Man and he's in the black <laughs> suit. Like he just like is this preposterous, like trendy guy with the shadow and the shoes. And oh, part of him on part of him knows this. Part of him knows he's pretending. And he thinks he can just keep cycling through and distancing himself is that if he lampshades the shoes if he references look i'll take them off he can like wheel it back into his 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 self-portrayal he can always distance himself uh from what he's being seen as he can distance himself from being seen as the the business you know man kind of guy he thinks he can distance himself from the like trendy try-hard guy that people instantly see through but i think the tragedy of of ken in this episode is on one level that no at the end of the day he can't escape the family name that will forever be tied to him but i think the further tragedy is more intimate to him Uh, and i think that's that there is no him outside of the the who he is in relation to his family and i think you see this with a lot of characters in this episode They go to this neutral, liminal, whatever space in Prague, and they discover that there's like, they have an opportunity to reinvent themselves, and they discover, or we discover about them, that there is no real them except in relation to their childhoods and to each other and to their father. And there's no, Ken is always creating a layer of himself. He's always putting on something that he thinks he should be whether that's trying to live up to his legacy within the company or trying to define himself against the company, he's unable to create an identity that is completely outside of the company and what's expected of it. Yeah. Um, something I noticed, um, and I thought it was just kind of, kind of funny in this episode, you know, Kendall's tells Greg that, you know, he wants ketamine, get ketamine. And that's kind of like his response to Greg throughout the night, get a couple laughs through it but he ends up doing coke because that's what's there and there's no ketamine and in the finale there's the situation ken's been doing coke and then he wants more coke and there's no more coke but there is ketamine you know the point that it's really interesting to me is one kendall doesn't really know what the fuck he wants as you know but also like he can't get what he wants ever and that's because it's not identified and also it's just the you know i i've always personally projected a lot of my own you know kind of familial dynamics and kind of said you know he he wants love and acceptance from his father and as who he is and you know he he'll never be able to get that and and so i you know just found that issue about ken really not being able to get what he wants i think actually the 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 drug choices in this episode and for the rest of the season with regard to Ken actually speak fairly well to his state of mind and the mood that he's seeking. There's Mm, a lot of research that shows that people will expose themselves to certain media or engage in certain behaviors in order to feel a certain way because they're motivated to feel a certain way, whether it's to feel anger towards an outgroup or you know, hope in a peace process or something like that. And I think we see that um, very clearly with Ken here. I think um, he comes into this party and he's kind of manic and it seems like he's been, he's, you know, acting like he's 
definitely on coke and, and he does a lot of coke in this episode and he's seeking ketamine which is more of a sedative and more i think what he needs to balance his absolutely outlandish just total boundary crossing behavior in this episode which correlates definitely to something like coke whereas ketamine would have probably cooled him down um he he does a lot of shitty things in this episode you know related to the subplot with the, the startup that he's working with and those women to greg and i think um again speaking to ken not being able to get what he wants none of these kids none of these family members being able to get what they want I, I think it speaks also to sort of the, the broader themes that are brought up in the second half of the season of childhood, of trauma, which there's, you know, definitely layers here in this episode that, you know, start to get peeled back. I think maybe even more so than the Austerlitz episode, which is more explicitly a therapy episode. But it's interesting how Ken was looking for ketamine in this episode and it might have actually helped him avoid some of the, you know, really shitty things he did. Whereas in the final episode, it's sort of the opposite dynamic where he's he's looking for something to get him going because he's engaging in something that's really, really high stakes and he can't slow down. I think this episode starts to kind of show us a lot of the coping mechanisms that these kids are using to deal with what is assuredly a long history of trauma and a very fucked up childhood. And we see it in the ways that they rebuff sort of offers for help from from people they could lean on and who could ostensibly help them and sort of um, burrowing themselves inward into their own ways. We see it with Shiv and her intimacy issues and the ways that she just sort of views her career as a game. She views her relationships as a game. It's all throwaway. You know, she can pivot the, the leftist socialist candidate to the center for the general, no problem. With Roman, we see it, you know, he takes out some of his aggression on Greg and Ken. I mean, it's just, it's throughout the whole episode. And then, you know, there's this theme of the cage. But for a show that's about wealthy people, I know we've talked about this. There's not a lot of gratuitous portrayals of, you know, really glossy sex scenes or drug scenes, um, party scenes that you might see in other rich people shows. And even in this episode, it's kind of a hellish nightmare scape as we've talked about. And as the characters have talked about, um, there's parts of the, the, the lighting and the whole setting that are just really like unbearable and, and kind of grating. And the funny thing is that most of these kids and characters don't really even do drugs. Um, and we see them this time, a bunch of them on drugs kind of for the first time Roman, even though it's been talked about that, you know, oh, Roman's just gonna, you know, blow his trust away or whatever. We never really see Roman fucked up. This is the first time we see Connor fucked up. Greg, you know, we know what happens to him. Tom, I mean, for a show that I think captures wealth really in in a realistic way, this is something that to me is so great because, you know, not every single wealthy person is, you know, doing drugs with reckless abandon. Like being a drug addict is, you know, we talked about this in, in Austerlitz is not something that happens in a vacuum. And the show really demonstrates that well and, and with such nuance and without throwing anything in our faces, but making it very clear that, you know, drugs are the coping mechanism of choice for someone like Ken. Yeah. You know, they got and it's, I, I think the main thing is just like how, boring these people are ultimately right you know it's 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 uh that's that's the that's the famous line from in the loop the ianucci project where you know malcolm says i've met a lot of you know i've met a lot of boring fucks in my time but not as fucking boring as you um and uh that's 
you know, that's, you know, Tom's big idea of acting out on this trip is getting a handy, which leads to, you know, one of the best lines of the season. You know, he swallows his own load. It's like, so it's in the way it's like I didn't cheat because it all stayed in my body like a closed loop system. Um, <laughs> which, I, I, which I think, which I have come and the, to see. And his delivery on that is just. Yeah. And the, <laughs> the way everybody comes up to him at the end is like, congratulations, Tom. I hear you swallowed your own load like three times. But it's, it's, it's come to stand in as this great sort of circular metaphor i think for this episode which has them descending into the tunnels and then coming back up to the city and you know uh ken kind of going on this circular path uh where everything eventually comes back to the family the closed loop system i think is about as apt uh if pretty disgusting a metaphor uh, for what is happening this episode, as you can get, it's a it's level I think of you know screenwriting sophistication that I I, I think is I, I think comes up to another level uh, in this episode. Um, I think that uh, in in this episode you see the show being both more complex than we've seen it be before, uh, but also really on the nose in a way that I think is productive. Um, like that you have lines that are very straight up about like what the show is about, what the characters are like, lines like, oh, it's just people pretending to be people, or you have to play possum sometimes, you know, describing the characters, you know, having to put on an identity to try and to fit in with other people or to construct themselves or to get along with the rest of their family or their business, you know, playing possum, Roman pretending to be weak. Uh, And not only that, but also convincing these characters convince themselves that they are only pretending to be weak, that they are only pretending to be dead. Uh, and that they're, they're always just playing possum. They're never truly defeated. Uh, every humiliation is just something that they tell themselves they're consenting to. And that of course ties in with, uh, Roman's dog cage story, uh, and the ambiguity over whether this is a humiliation that he consented to, as a way to feel like a part of the family and to, in a way, control his own, you know, the bullying that happens to him. Or, or if it really was a case where, uh, you know, his brothers were putting him in that cage uh, forcibly. Or if it's some mixture of the two. If it's that uh, they convinced him that he liked it or he convinced himself that he liked it. You know, I think that ambiguity to what level of control and acceptance he has over being put in a cage and also tormented and humiliated uh, that aligns with what he says earlier in the episode about how sometimes you have to play possum sometimes you have to convince someone more powerful than you uh, that they got you when really you're still alive you're biding your time and i think that the swallowing your own load (laughs) is the most uh obvious and striking uh, example of that complexity, but also very obviousness that the show's engaging in in this episode. And I think engaging in really, really just entertainingly, because I think, as you say, it's, he's, it's a funny gag that he swallows his own load and that he thinks it's cool and that everyone makes fun of him. It's cyclical. The closed system line is funny, but it also describes what's happening with these characters. Uh, and then I think it even says something about Tom in the way that the cage uh, anecdote says something about Roman, because Tom is someone who is always swallowing his own load. He's always just like, you know, could, hyping himself up and convincing himself that he is this 
this cool person, this powerful person, this alpha guy. And that's just a way of viewing his own like emasculation by the rest of the family as him being accepted into it and doing something cool. And he displaces the humiliation that he feels on some level onto Greg and thinks that if, you know, if I just big man Greg all the time, you know, that I, I'm Tom, I'm Tom, I'm a big part of this company, I'm a, I'm a confident man, this kid, I'm gonna, I'm gonna rib him and show him what's up. And he, I think the show overdoes it, showing Tom, you know, ribbing and tormenting Greg in the early episodes. I think they like, you know, hit it, hit that nail too many times. But I think that fruit emerges, the, the fruit of those, that emphasis emerges in this episode and in the next couple episodes when you see the the reasons that Tom tries to do that and his kind of comeuppance for for pretending to himself and to this person who eventually becomes his only real friend, pretending that he's he's so much better and above it and thinking that harming someone and pushing back against human connection is the way to elevate yourself, which is something that I think he's learning from this family that's constantly mm. engaging in this kind of emotional cannibalism on each other, where Roman even proposes at one point to his dad, we get what we want, the other guy gets what he wants, that's what a deal should be, right? And the dad rejects it completely. In this family, every interaction, every deal, uh, every relationship is zero-sum in a way. They have to take more than they give. They have to defeat someone. They can't just mutually benefit. Uh, and that's the only language of exchange that they know and that they've been taught by their father. Well, I, I think the thing you said about um, you originally described, I think, the party as this sort of liminal space. And that is the space that Tom occupies throughout the whole season. And that is, I think, why it's really apt that they're in this. Yeah, this place that feels almost like like an in-between place, because what to where Tom is is constantly you know, he is in two states. He is both in the family and yet not of it and brought into certain experiences because of that connection of that connection of being a fiance and then an in-law. Um, but he is never made to feel, you know, a part of that family. You know, even Shiv gets in that moment of making him feel like shit about getting yeah, uh, I mean, he, getting he a head job at the end, um, you know, and half joking, going like, no, you have to tell me. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, yeah. And he feels guilty about it. He absolutely does because he's not that guy. Yeah. He's like straddling this, this middle area, like you said, the, the liminal space where, you know, he, he, he's getting all the material benefits and the access of being part of a family like this, but his whole involvement with the family and continued, ability to, to have that sort of access hinges on his relationship, which is an extremely fragile relationship, as we can see Shiv sort of full on, you know, now just kind of blatantly cheating on Tom. Um, you know, it's, it's very tenuous. And I think clearly Tom knows, and I think he's taking it out on um, the people around him by sort of posturing, like Cam was saying, a sort of like, you know, this, you know, big, cool guy who's waving, you know, waving his dick around, big dick competition. And I think I, I agree with you there with that critique that maybe it's a little bit overdone with Greg in the first few episodes. It takes a little while for um, you to see kind of what's really going on there because Greg, uh, meanwhile, is just sort of sitting behind and, you know, he's in hell in this situation, but no matter what happens, his DNA is Roy. Meanwhile, Tom knows, like, 
all of this um, <laughs> is contingent upon his continuing this this very tenuous relationship with his his fiance, and you know we see that sort of anxiety throughout throughout the season and and in this episode quite well. And yeah, it's it's a rough one for Greg. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of you know like folks trying to like convince themselves of things and be people they're not you know some of these like on the nose lines that you were talking about cam uh you know reminds me of one of shiv's lines when she's with nate and she says you know there's no god there's no anything there's just people in rooms and you people know i trying to be happy yeah sisters yeah, doing it for themselves <laughs> Right, people in rooms trying to That's be happy. That's her rationalization, and, yeah. Exactly, and this is so shiv. It's like this, and she's constantly trying to, like, detach yeah. at all times and be detached. It, she thinks there's some kind of superiority in that versus being emotionally, you know, involved and in tune. And, you know, that line and that delivery, you know, really stuck with me. Um, it is just... Yeah. It is such a phony bit of nihilism. Like, yeah. she doesn't remotely believe it. It yeah. is exactly. It's, it's you know the the way that Sarah Snook plays that you know, and the way she plays a lot of these scenes in the later part of the season. Because if you look, the one thing that really has stood out to me on rewatching these is really trying to pay attention to what the narrative for Shiv is, because it wasn't clear on me on first watch. And it's this complete narrative of this person who considers herself to be very in control being continually shown ways in which she is very much not in control of her life and finding ways to, you know, sort of justify and rationalize her position in the world, in the family. And there's a, there's a degree to which she becomes a little bit unglued by it, you know, in this relationship with Nate, you know, she's becoming a little bit unglued here, trying to rationalize it because by this point, she has, you know, and there's in the exchange at the end of Austerlitz, I think also really drives us home. She's sleeping around on Tom because he's the only person that she's able to fuck over. He's yeah. the only person that she can exercise control on and, you know, and stunt on and, you know, exploit um, because he loves her. And that's the thing that is, I think, rattling her a lot, and especially in these last few episodes. Yeah, she's a uh, Shiv is an irony guy in this episode where she's talking about like, <laughs> oh I don't care. Like, she's just looking so funny. It doesn't matter. Like everyone else is to care. Um, and then she even like, it even ends up with her like and to- convincing Tom to get married as a bit. Uh, she's just kind of, and she's like, you know, just kind of getting married as a joke. Cause it's like, Oh, look at me. I'm getting married. Like, <laughs> You're just making a jack off motion with the poke. Um, <laughs> like, but, she, you know, I, I'm joking, but she, like, she is very much, like, it is a similar pattern where she's kind of trying to displace herself from everything she's doing and displace herself from a- a- anything that anyone could do or could enjoy or could invest in seriously. She's always trying to kind of be a, a layer of remove away from anything, but is still doing things. Uh, and convinces herself that she's doing them because they're in front of her, um, right. or because she feels like it at the time, yeah. rather than because it has totally. any connection to her even, at her even core. Even her work with with Gil, like it's I mean, we know Shiv gets off on power, like that's her thing. And the places, two places where she can exercise power the most are in her relationship and in her work. And she's the most like Logan in the sense that 
Um, she thinks that by detaching from, from feelings is what's going to be the thing that satisfies her, that fills the hole in her soul. And, you know, so, so she continually detaches. And, and, and then, like Brendan said, I mean, I think we really start to see her sort of unraveling here. But, yeah, there was another line when, when her and Nate are, are at the, I, I guess it's a speech, uh, a Neva's speech. And she says, I can't believe I'm getting paid to call my dad name. My dad names. It's so cathartic. And, and the adversarial relationship between her and her father, um, you know, it's sort of been simmering throughout the season because, you know, he claims he wants her to get involved in the, in the business. She's trying to distinguish herself by getting involved in politics that are antagonistic towards her father and everything that she comes from in terms of her family and but ultimately she can't escape it i mean she's in every other way that none of the children can escape it she is ultimately at the mercy of her father even if she you know feels like you know she has um set herself apart of from this rest of this world and, and is superior we see that all of it is just a fool's errand and, and in the end you know, with her dad sort of threatening her. Uh, yeah, I know, Brendan, I, I didn't pick up on that first time I watched that. that yeah, was, there's... Maybe like, threat involved. You know, it's 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 funny that Shiv... Well, I mean, this is, you know, admit this is, of course, what the arc is constructed to do, but Shiv ostensibly is in the, wor- in the field that she's in so that she doesn't have to be part of the family business, etc., and can be her own woman. But, of course, it becomes, as we see with everybody else, everybody else in this episode has shown that there is no escape from the family name. And Shiv is, in this episode, she is with the Gill campaign mostly to get to her father, mostly to try to get validation from her father. And the scene in this episode that you're alluding to, Gabby, where um, she sits down with Logan, and Logan makes this very veiled threat that, you know, tell Gil to, you know, stop attacking my companies and my name, or all I should just let them come for you, is what he says. And he also says, I hear things. The implication is that he knows about the affair with Nate and that he can leak it to the press because, of course, he is, you know, the king of the news, which is a very sort of Rupert uh, Murdoch-esque moment. And it's also, in another bit of circularity here, something that Ken echoes at the very end. Uh, Ken, throughout this episode, is trying to get involved with this startup called Dust. <laughs> that uh, it's a it's a startup that sort of sells uh, art by emerging artists to, I guess, sort of high end buyers. Um, but uh, he thinks he has a pretty good shot at it. At the party, he finds out he doesn't. In this very memorable exchange with Angela, the founder, he talks to. She says she can't uh, associate with somebody with the Roy name, with the great line, it'd be like I was marrying Hitler, and then I'd get to be what? Mrs. Hitler. And at the and at the end of the episode, Ken is on the phone with Frank, and he is instructing Frank to put out a story that, you know, they're, what does he say, that they're uh, uh, shooting uh, seed capital in, the, in their veins, or, um, putting out a rumor that they're junkies, which is mirrors what Logan is threatening to do to Shiv. So we see him becoming just like his father in that final scene as he is a returning like Coriolanus to sack Rome, returning uh, on an errand of vengeance to team up with his father's enemy. Yeah, well, this goes back to what Cam said. They can't just have victory. There has to be defeat. There has to be suffering. Yeah, and we haven't talked yet about uh, the major 
bit of plot business in this episode, which is uh, Sandy Furness. We talked about how Stewie is the one to meet them, you know, at the gates of the party, like the ferryman on the river sticks. And he uh, ferries uh, Ken over to this meeting with the Prince of Darkness, with Sandy Furness, who is implied to be, I guess, just like a total sex freak, because that's the reason he's at one of these parties. This just old, creepy lech played by Larry Pine, who uh, he says in another uh, very vivid bit of imagery that he is a parasite. He has a shell company attached to Stewie's private equity firm, meaning that Stewie's shares of Waystar are essentially uh, Sandy's shares of Waystar. Which I think he says he's a parasite on a parasite. Sorry to jump (laughs) in, but he's a a parasite on a parasite. Yeah, and as Cam said, it's another instance of, you know, these characters not having true right. selves because Stewie is revealed to be basically a, a Russian doll or a Trojan horse. This guy that Cam thought was his friend is revealed not only to have not been his friend, as he found out in the board meeting, but he isn't who he thought he was at all. He's actually this other guy, and he's just a front. Yeah, I mean, Stewie kind of sets the whole sequence in motion in, in this episode by redirecting Roman when he asks, oh, do you know Coke dealer in Prague? Um, say, oh, you know, my, my girlfriend, you know, goes to these crazy parties. And, and um, you know, that was all sort of a ploy to get to Ken. And when we see Roman kind of blow up, it's due at the end, which I thought was interesting. And, and Roman kind of has been shit on throughout the episode. And he's going through this personal crisis, trying to recall a childhood trauma and, and make sense of it. And everybody has sort of a, a different take on it, which by the end, I think it, they leave it vague as, you know, as Cam mentioned, which is good. And a great thing that the show continues to do when it comes to heady topics like that. But um, I think we can kind of take away that it really is was Logan at the end of the day who sort of orchestrated whatever shit was going on with them being locked in the dog cage eating dog food and and roman eventually getting sent away to to military school which is a thing that happens to bad little rich boys um and you know that he did it actually to to drive a wedge between the two boys i i think what we are meant to take away is yeah i think what you say gabby that logan was instrumental in that conflict between them as children that has kind of haunted them as adults. I mean, he could have put an end to it, is is the point, you know. There's no reason for any of that to have gone down, for that to be a memory that's, you know, embedded in their in their brains. And so, you know, it always does fall with Logan, the responsibility. Well, exactly. And I mean, you think of the way that, you know, households like this are run, and it's sort of a parallel to the way that these giant corporations are run, where, you know, the less that the executives at the top know, the more sort of uh, the less accountability um, they're forced to take in the end. And the way that executives like Logan manage that by having underlings who are responsible for enforcing whatever cultures of fear and intimidation are in play, you know, it may have been some housekeeper or some nanny who was, you know, carrying out much of this um but logan's hand you know uh, his invisible hand was behind it all of course as it always is i think uh yeah going back to the idea that they they haven't been able to develop as their own people because they're always not only defined in relationship to their father but they're always defining themselves uh either in terms of what they're doing or against what they're doing especially kendall Kendall is always, and, and we see it very explicitly in this episode, he's trying to define himself against the family name. He's trying to define himself against his previous image. He's trying to disown his current image. 
Um, he's always trying to tell himself that he's something other than what he's doing. He tries to tell himself that he's not an addict. He tries to tell himself that he's not too fucked up to do what he's doing. He tries to tell himself that he's not a neglectful father. He tries to tell himself that he's not a bad guy uh, generally. Uh, he, he's always trying to, to say, whatever I'm doing, that's not, that's not me. And then there's also the, um, the, the reverse uh, as well, where he seems, he seems to, to adjust himself to what he is doing. Uh, and shift himself where he'll change his clothes or his, he'll change his demeanor. He'll change how he talks to, to try to just as he's running from his outward appearance to try and run towards a, a different outward appearance or, or different visible identity to take himself out of a box that he's been put in only to willfully put himself into a new one. Uh, just as Roman may or may not willfully put himself into a cage, uh, to try and escape. Uh, another type of being trapped uh, and out of control. Yeah, and that ties into another one of my favorite motifs, which is Roman Roman's inability to be intimate. Which uh, uh, another little another little bit of that I missed here was when uh, Tom and Roman first lay eyes on uh, Tabitha, um, the God, and now I'm forgetting the actress's name, Caitlin Fitzgerald. Um, Caitlin Fitzgerald, thank you. Um, they, who is uncredited in this episode, but uh, is first glimpsed in a very nice bit of blocking during that ni- that first long sort of continuous take um, as they enter the party. At one point, she enters like right between two characters and is framed in the shot for a few seconds before she walks away again. Uh, but uh, anyway, the moment where Tom and Rome are looking at her and uh, Tom's like, what do you think? And Roman's like, oh, yeah, I- I'd fucking... Uh, he can't, like, he no. can't. He says, he says he dad, even dad would have loved her, which do. is like, so... Yeah, Gavin. Right, Kay, did you pick up? It's totally... Because, I, I, Brendan, I had missed that originally, too. You, and you noticed it, so I paid special attention to that scene on one of the rewatches. And the first thing he says is, dad would would love i mean love i was her. like and it's just Jesus like christ yeah no, what no, the freudian trauma there at all <laughs> like that's his first thought dad would love her man yeah it was it's also yeah, wild sixth episode we didn't get to talk about this but very briefly he when um <laughs> when uh it's brought up that there's like an oedipal situation with mm-hmm. wanting to take out his dad he's like you know, he he rejects that notion, and then he talks about how, but he would definitely fuck Marsha because she's hot. Yeah, <laughs> like that's, that's phase two to Lawrence. Yeah, that's Lawrence. Yeah. So and so weird. So so he kind of yeah is just projecting all over the place because as Vernon brought up, um, some some serious blockages there for for Roman and Grace is now out of the picture, and this is supposed to be some fun sex party, but nobody really seems to be having a lot of fun. I do want to highlight two more of my favorite lines of dialogue in this episode. Um, one is a, is, is a throwaway when Greg is like really high on Coke and Tom is telling him, you know, that he swallowed that, you know, he's like, he's like, and I, I just, I swallowed it. And Greg says, which the cum, which is <laughs> <laughs> fantastic which? phrasing. And then, of course, the other <laughs> iconic line from this is Connors uh, ask them where they were on 9-11. If they don't know, they could be underage. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, with uh, with Roman, there's an incredible amount of psychology at work. Oh, yeah. Uh, as we've talked about. 
I'm just I, I have it running in the background right now, and it's the scene where Greg uh, has to do the coke oh, <laughs> to save Ken from doing it. Oh my god, um, horrible! Yeah, I, I was a little surprised not to, but that he had never done coke before. I mean, it's such a small I detail, like such, a, <laughs> such, like a, a, such a weird he's like a little suburban thing. stoner kid. Yeah, yeah, I know, but you still oh, try you? coke like once or twice. I mean, it's a dumb nitpick, but I was like, what? That, plenty that of people don't try me. coke. Uh, it didn't surprise me. <laughs> and, uh, I did and, feel terrible for him, though. And then, <laughs> yeah, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a pleasant introduction. Head. Another, another great throw. Yeah, what is, what is Tom's like, big fat white dicks you pervert? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Tom has and then Tom comes in and thinks Tom comes in and thinks that Greg is hogging the coke <laughs> that he did to to protect <laughs> Kendall from doing coke. <laughs> which yeah. is just like the like the comedy is just running uh at some of those points and that's yeah. i think where the show was really clicking where, wherever you go the party finds you oh god yeah that <laughs> that's such a good line it, i just mean so many things too. Yeah. you know speaking of psychology at work like also the shiv ke- keeps telling tom and assuring tom in terms of the cheating we're both adults what the fuck was she brought up to think adulthood is, you know? Like, she comes from a broken home. I mean, regardless of how much money and privilege there was. So. But I hear there is less Shiv's childhood speaking and more her just, you know, her bullshit yeah. machine working. You yeah. know, which well, is, yeah. you know, it's very much this idea of like, hey, consenting adults, you know, whatever. Yeah, she has this vision of like an urban... That she's doing anything wrong, yeah. Yeah, like I think she has but a vision of herself and of what like a person and and yeah that speaks to it but it's it's also just a again yeah a little edge lord <laughs> vibe there like be a grown up fucking babies you know I was going to say, since we're on Shiv again, uh, we haven't talked about Gil much this episode. Um, I figured we would want to talk about Gil at some point. Uh, I only made, I think, one note about Gil in this episode, which is that Bogosian sounds like Eric. Uh, he sounds like uh, uh, Anthony Bourdain. Does he have an, ec- a po- an economic podcast or at least a podcast that he reads for or something? Uh, he does a lot of voiceover work. He was the narrator. He's, he's been the narrator in a few things I've seen. Yeah, because Nadav was listening to something today, and I, I swore it was his voice, and I forgot to follow up. And I also, for a brief second, thought maybe it was Bourdain, so that's interesting, because I know <laughs> there's something similar there in the cadence. I go back and forth between wondering if this is, you know, as Cam brought up an element of the world building that's a little bit weak, because, you know, the idea of, like, this guy running for president after his wife has killed herself seems yeah. a little bit contrived in a way that doesn't quite scan with the coherence um, of this world otherwise. But uh, I, I also go back, I go back and forth between that and thinking that Gil is very strategically and intentionally differentiated from the person he represents he's differentiated from bernie in certain crucial ways so that although the inspiration is obviously bernie sanders and a bernie sanders-esque figure exists in this world the show is telling you to be careful about viewing him that way because they are not the same person and i think gill makes some choices in the finale that sort of tell you why they would want you to differentiate them because i think the idea of a political figure 
with the actual sort of potential to sort of change the world and upend the system, etc., is something that I think the reality of the world within the show cannot accommodate. For the show to make sense, the system has to be something that is unending and unbreakable. And so its conception of a Bernie-esque figure is somewhat more cynical than it would be if they were simply just trying to transpose him into the world of the show. And I think uh, it's it's important that Gil is part of Shiv's story because a lot of it is just kind of her having her own side realm uh, where there's something going on for her separate from the family. And what seems to be happening there is that it's confronting Shiv and her cynicism with obviously someone who has real conviction and confronting her with that. Uh, and what I'm not sure of is whether the moment you're talking about at the end of the season where he does make a deal with the devil, whether that is supposed to be showing this family corrupting everything that it touches or whether that's showing that the uh, taint, taintedness, <laughs> the, taint, the taintedness of the family uh, is also present in the rest of the world uh, and that everything around them is not just as they can't become virtuous by defining themselves against their father. The other characters in this world don't become virtuous just by being defined against the family. Uh, they have their own flaws that are self-generated. So I'm not sure what the show is doing there. I'm not sure if it's showing Shiv infecting this virtuous figure. And that's supposed to be tragic that she was presented by someone who's supposedly incorruptible and she or her association corrupts him or whether it's showing us the show is kind of expanding um the uh the flaws in this world to not only the family um but to everyone uh in their own way right yeah right gill is in the trap too you know he's not free from you know this the sorts of influences that are at work on these kids but i think that the show is telling you not to see this person as incorruptible because if this backstory with his wife has a purpose it is to cast some doubt on his character i think uh because well it's 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 it could be something that they're intending to do more with next season you know it exists sort of as something that you know atn can throw at him but it's i i think it's deliberately placed there to say that you don't know this is not the person you think you know this is not like the bernie sanders character where you think you have all these preconceptions about who he is this is a different person and there is some doubts as to how sincere or how virtuous a person he might be. I also like that in that ATN uh, piece where the female anchor is goading him, he seems to be being set up to uh, yell at a woman, a la Bernie, because uh, he's got a problem with the broads. I was just going to cut in uh, with a little aside that if uh, if Gil is Anthony Bourdain, which he resembles and talks like, uh, Logan is Gordon Ramsay. Because pretty much everything out of his mouth is just, fuck you, fuck off, fuck off. <laughs> like, he has a very <laughs> similar response to Gordon Ramsay, where, like, if someone's not doing what they need to be doing for for me right this second, they can take the jacket and fuck off. But none of the tenderness. <laughs> Maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah only the dark side of... of uh, uh, Kate, you had a point, so go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I mean, the other thing going on with Shiv here, and, like, uh, you know, such a big plot point at the end and you know especially speaking 
like how Brendan says she's kind of unraveled a little bit this episode. The episode almost ends on her getting a phone call from Marsha after she's had that dinner with Logan where he has the veiled threats. And, um, you know, Marsha says that they're not coming to the wedding. Which is, you know, a huge thing. And here we see, again, some really great acting from Sarah, who, again, is detached. I mean, she she can't feel this and just responds. She still knows she is, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this really gets to her core. And like like I said, it speaks to her acting. You can see it. Um, I'm trying to think how the shot is. Um, I think you're looking at her face. And and she's clearly, you know, distraught by it. But she's, oh yeah, sure. I think that's the line, you know. And yeah, like, I mean, we've we've talked a lot in this episode, and obviously throughout the season about the ways the kids um, are beholden to Logan and project onto him, and then but we still never really get a clear sense of exactly how much fondness Logan has for his children. I mean, he continues to say that everything he does is for his children, but that seems to be somewhat cynical, also mired in sort of material needs, um, which is a way that, you know, he can rationalize his sadism, essentially, by, you know, saying that he's given his kids the world. But, you know, there's things in this episode that continue to keep us guessing, like putting Greg on the mission to make sure that Kendall doesn't get too fucked up. Roman also a little bit concerned. He asks Kendall if he's going to need help with sobriety. I mean, that's a separate issue, but um, you know, Logan put Greg on that job. Is that a cynical job or is he really, you know, concerned again? I don't know. And Kendall asks how dad is when he sees Roman in the tunnel. One of the first things Um, I'm so glad you went back to this Gabby, because I definitely thought about this as well. And I think that I at least kind of convinced myself that um, Logan feels after one of the beginning scenes where Roman um, doesn't seem to live up to Logan's expectations. I kind of feel like Logan at that point is like, okay, Roman isn't going to work. Got to get Kendall back. Like in terms of why does he give that job to Greg? Like, I don't know if that's for sure. But, and, and again, it's not like that thought process necessarily happened, but I think there's that transactional, I don't know. That was my takeaway was I think that, you know what, this isn't because then we see him go to Shiv, you know, at the end towards coming. So it kind of seemed like this like triangulation of like, who's going to be able to, you know, take the help, do the best for me, you know, instead of like genuine affectation. Well, one thing I'd like to, one, one question I'd like to raise, I think is the idea of how useful it is to think of Logan as this sort of puppet master character who is constantly in sort of gamesmanship mode and uh, has a strategy behind everything he's doing. The refrain of Logan saying that he loves his children, you know, which I think uh, Armstrong has been asked about this many times, and he says that Logan genuinely believes it. And I think that tells you a lot about him because uh, I think specifically what the ending of Austerlitz is about, that final uh, couple of shots of the scars on Logan's back is to suggest that although Logan is many magnitudes more monstrous than his children because of 
the amount of agency he's had in shaping the world and in inflicting pain and in intentionally creating these structures that continue to reverberate through generations of trauma. He is a product of certain environments as well. He is a product of certain times and of certain conditions that hardened his heart at some point. And when he says that he loves his children, if you take that seriously, the next question is, what does that love mean and what shape does it take? Which I think is the more meaningful question for the show. It's interesting that uh, Succession is kind of came to HBO as one of the potential successors uh, of the network's flagship, which is Game of Thrones, uh, of course. And because the, the Logan family relationship is so similar to the Lannister family relationship in Game of Thrones, down to especially Shiv and Logan in this episode, uh, where Shiv is very similar to Cersei and that she resents never having been the candidate to take over, you know, Logan trying out. Uh, both Kendall and Roman uh, and Shiv like Cersei constructs her identity as someone who is the most capable who is the smartest who is her father's daughter um, and because she defines herself against her brothers and then kind of plays this game of wanting to be separate from her father but also wanting to succeed on her father's terms and in her father's eyes um, she kind of you know both these characters um, get in over their heads and are often taken to task either by their failure in the external world or, or by kind of being defeated by their father um, in kind of their internal politicking um, because both Shiv and Cersei aren't as clever um, and as kind of in control as they think themselves to be um, because they're kind of just judging themselves against their fuck-up brothers and uh, they'll never be the genuine, uh, the genuine article, the the level of shrewdness that their fathers are, and they think that by replicating the cynicism or cruelty of their fathers, they can become the mastermind and uh, the kind of monarch that their fathers are. But because they're just chasing that model rather than finding one that is actually their own, they're kind of doomed to this failure uh, of never replicating that model. Uh, and re never realizing either that that model is not one to replicate and that it'll always be uh, something that will consume them from the inside uh, and leave them with no real personhood of their own. Well, we haven't, uh, we don't know how the books end yet. So that's true. In the, in the books of succession, uh, Roman, <laughs> Roman, Roman had a hunchback and I'm, uh, I'm uh, furious that they left that out. Yeah, there's about 70 other succession characters that are only in the book. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was a nice uh, I, visual moment at the end. Um, especially, we didn't get into too much about the, the stylism of this episode, which yeah. is markedly different from the rest of the season up to this point. Um, although you guys talked about it in a more abstract way in the beginning. But um, the old school elevator at the end when they're leaving the cage kind of slams onto Roman in, in sort of a moment of tension between Roman and Ken, a moment of just kind of annoyance. And um, I thought it was interesting that um, I thought it was a, it was a good shot and, and the cage itself sort of was subtle enough that you might not pick up on the larger motif, but again, sort of speaks to some of the more on the nose elements that, 
that make this episode great, um, that, that work well that you guys were talking about. And I, I just thought that that was a, that was a, a really, really nice little moment. There's definitely a lot more intentional, I think, framings uh, in this episode. Um, like with the long take I talked about earlier, those shots at the end, there are a lot of shots of the characters through sort of window panes that look sort of like bars in a cage, something like that. Um, I do still have some issues with the direction. A lot of the shots are somewhat muddy still, where it's a little bit hard to make out the characters. Um, but uh, but overall, I think, yeah, there is a lot more visual intention to it than, than previous episodes. I think uh, just as I'm watching it here, two things stand out one of them is that although we we've kind of talked about this this setting this liminal space this demimond this hell whatever we're thinking of it as although we're thinking of it as kind of an enclosed space for the characters to just go wild a lot of the action in this space is driven by uh input from the external world whether it's tom calling shiv to get permission and then can only act when that's granted whether it's Frank calling Ken uh, and then Ken's perception and um, interactions with the uh, the people he's trying to fund completely changes like I and, and obviously Greg's orders from outside to um, to go and keep an eye on Ken. Um, so I think that I don't have very specific thoughts on that, but I think it is interesting to think of this world as somewhere where they're always in some way receiving transmissions from the outside that then change how they act, act in this kind of uh, in this box that they're all stuck in with each other with only these limited messages from the outside world. So and the other the second thing is that when I watched this episode, I thought of I think in True Detective season two, I think Vince Vaughn probably says it, but there's this goofy kind of throwaway faux profound line uh, where him or, or or his wife is like, uh, and everything's fucking except fucking. And I think that this episode of Succession actually articulates it because they go to this supposed sex party to to be debauched and to kind of indulge in in kind of earthly pleasures, carnal desires, the whole works. But they all end up just going into into what actually drives them. For Ken, it's trying to make these deals. It's trying to like advance uh, and prove himself to be this this success, successful businessman who's just completely driven like a shark, and he doesn't even really consider uh, indulging in anything else. Uh, even the drugs are just a mechanism to make himself more efficient uh, at doing these business deals. And then you have Tom. You know, he, he does, he does, you know, pursue, uh, his desire for someone, but it's, it's always in the context of trying to, to make sure things are okay with Shiv and that he's, you know, that that's working right. And even that long shot, uh, that we talk about when, uh, when his, uh, love interest in this setting first appears, she actually turns into Shiv, uh, when it cuts to the next scene. It isn't, you know, a completely seamless transition, but you see her walk out of the room and his eyes follow her. And then we see Shiv emerge through some doors at like the TV network or something. So he's always kind of chasing this, this shade, this uh, Mario Kart lap record setting ghost uh, of his actual wife. Uh, and then for all the other characters, whether it's Roman, you know, Connor just talking about like, 
dumbass political stuff that he's annoying everyone with. He even ends up being the one to ask, ask the 9-11 line in kind of a joke. But it's fitting that it's him because he's always, you know, bugging people with his esoteric, weird, politically probing questions anyway, even when it isn't a trick to get them to reveal their age. So, yeah, I, I think that it's part of what makes this episode uh, very great and very distinctive is that they go to kind of pursue sex and pursue debauchery uh, and per- and kind of celebrate being away from their lives and being, you know, free, you know, not yet married, not yet locked into a deal, not yet whatever. Uh, and instead we see what prisoners they are in so many ways, but also how, how much their North Star, their driving, the, the thing that obsesses them and that they desire uh, is not at the end of the day, just kind of human pleasure. It is the, these um, ways to kind of resolve all their neuroses and obsessions. And in this episode, those things completely take them over. And for Roman, it's, it's kind of disapproval from his family and this, this idea that he's always put upon and he deserves better, but he'll never get it. Yeah, those are excellent points. And similar to the idea that this is just sort of like a prestige wealth show, and that's how it was advertised. And it's quite different from that. Um, When we talk about this episode, like the bachelor party episode, when you think bachelor party episode about a rich family that it's going to be, you know, filled with um, (laughs) carnal pleasures that, that truly look enjoyable, um, and aspirational. And again, we come back to this point that the, nothing about this looks aspirational. It looks truly nightmarish, which I think uh, Greg actually calls it. And, you know, that just speaks to broader themes of the show. Also, just want to mention really quick, last thing for me. I don't know how many episodes it's been now, but it's definitely been a streak of Roy kids using revolutionary language to describe their pursuits. Um, Ken calls himself the Rebel Alliance in the meeting with the dust startup girls and you know just cracks me up so i'm, I'm gonna try and get a full tally on how many episodes how many lines that is another uh, instance of ken using a pop culture reference to try to seem hip it's a fucking <laughs> star wars yeah it's funny again on the nose they're like trying to escape and they're all stuck in their childhood I mean, literally, because mm. they're fucking talking about their child. Like, <laughs> I mean, you can't get more on this fucking nose than that. So, you know, it is an incredible episode. Sometimes I've thought of it as kind of a throwaway episode, which is not it the feels, case. It feels to me like, I don't know if I'm messing up the terminology for dramatic structure, but it feels to me like the emotional climax of the season. The um, denouement, or, or ev- yeah, everything. Well, the denouement is what comes after all this. Okay. But uh, this is, I think, everything flows sort of from these moments of realization that these characters have in this episode. Everything flows from what happens here. You know, at least for at least for the that major Ken storyline, everything flows from his experience at this party. Are there any characters we want to hit before we finish? Uh, whether that's Greg or Nate or. Um, I would Honor. love to hit Nate. <laughs> <laughs> Got him. Yeah, what's your... Do you have any interesting thoughts on Nate, Cam? I mean, we've kind of talked about him as a Impossible. Weak, you know, empty suit. And yeah, <laughs> I guess. No, I, I don't have a super strong read on him. Yeah, I know. I just... I haven't, I haven't heard any Anything you wanted to say about, um, about Greg, Cam? Considering you said or he was... Or Connor? 
character. <laughs> I think with Connor, I just summed up as that he's like kind of always like annoying everything, annoying everyone with his like weird political ideas as as kind of his thing during the party. He will be on a debate stage <laughs> at some point yeah. in his life. He wants it bad. Yeah. Um, God, that's such a funny turn of events. <laughs> yeah, I think like I've said this before, but Howard Schultz is like the Connor Roy campaign, but real. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, for my for my last piece of commentary on this podcast, I just want to say, yeah, Team Greg, he's a king. Uh, he's my son. I love him. Uh, me and my GF, uh, Greg was what kept us through this series. Yeah. When the first episodes, when we weren't really on board, every Greg scene would bring us back in. His physical acting is so good. The way he kind of hunches over and kind of has like a stoop and like kind of gamer shoulders, you know, how like gamers stand and like look at their phone and stuff. <laughs> and just his like the way he moves, the way he talks, his eyes, the, the phrasing he uses where he, he like tries to sound more sophisticated or smart or professional with these kind of terms of phrase he uses <laughs> around the Roy family. Especially the Logan. It's like, no, no, yeah. no, family style. Spying. Not, it's not spying. <laughs> yeah. When, or like in the Sorry. next episode, I think it is, when he's talking about that their mother alludes to, to the affair or something and or, or some kind of like rumor. And Greg is like, why? Have you heard tell? And just like <laughs> just everything that comes out of his mouth destroys me. He's amazing. Basically, man. physical acting too is unbelievable. I get it, and I love the physical stuff and the whole thing. And I really love how he's kind of like the all-seeing character, which is the like big master. I think is going to be the big. It's gonna it's gonna pay off that storyline. Yeah. Him seeing everything. That he's going to really be able to leverage something here. And um, I think that's going to be a huge plot point. But I've always, it's still just so funny, Cam, especially, you know, me trying to egg you on to watch the show, et cetera, et cetera. Here you've got Greg, like, carrying you through. And I'm like, yeah, he, he, he's a little overrated. <laughs> I also do like how he's, like, the audience, you know, what we're experiencing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's cool that yeah. they have that, like, character. And you know, the this is nightmarish line is like the perfect at the at the close of this episode. When Tom says, like, I'm having the fucking best time of my life, and Greg re- responds, <laughs> This is nightmarish. And Tom's even he's he's telling on himself there. He's not really having uh, a totally. Fight. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know we're uh Yeah. We're running out of time. Steve. Yeah, but uh but the uh, the thing I like about Greg is the sort of audience surrogate is what yeah uh, because right. he because he belongs to this class of characters in these Ianucci Armstrong projects where they they love their tall oafs uh, but you know that's that's it's it's the Chris Addison character in uh, in the loop who is the sort of first person you meet uh, who is like the first guy as like his first day on the job. Uh, but he's quickly revealed to be a complete spineless creep. And I, I I always think that's a clever device that they use to show that, you know, this character that you identify with is this person who is ultimately 
willing to bend over backwards to, you know, collect whatever scraps of power there are to be had, which uh, is, if if not quite the same with Greg, he is certainly uh, revealed to be less uh, of an innocent over time. Mm -hmm. I like how even just Kate, (laughs) in the process of not liking Greg that much, just repeating a Greg line to me, just like still had me in stitches. (laughs) (laughs) just like the greg by proxy even from a greg skeptic just gets me man he just gets me (laughs) he's got the moment at the beginning of this episode with uh uh, helping logan Logan with his laptop watching the video of phil talking about uh the roy's being a cancer he goes what a what a jerk he just lost my vote jackal And I I also love how Greg parlays this into another opportunity for himself in that scene, right? Like he's, the dad's like, that's a great line, but you know, Logan's like, watch out for Kendall. And Greg's like, oh, by the way, I'm looking for a lateral shift. You know, he is always fucking ready to... I mean, he, I do appreciate like how consistent he is with that, and I mean, I he he is a great character. It's just you know, <laughs> Logan's reaction. Tom, Greg, to Tom everyone too. loves Tom and Greg. I don't know. So <laughs> yeah, Logan's reaction to that was so funny when when he brings up that he wants the lateral shift because of leadership. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know the exact words he used, but yeah. Logan's reaction is I, I didn't know Tom About had it. Tom. Like genuinely shocked and and pleased. I don't know. Tom yeah, is, that Tom's a dick. Tom and yeah. Greg are the uh, you versus the guy she told you not to worry about meme. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the Alpha Greg or the Chad Greg versus <laughs> the Chad Greg. <laughs> oh my god! All right, the Virgin Tom versus the Chad Greg. Oh my god! All right, that's our episode title. We're gonna leave it there. <laughs> uh, Cam, do you oh, want to tell people where they can find you online for more of your sparkling commentary? Uh, on the on the computer, uh, you can find me at uh, Cam <laughs> underscore. <laughs> op- <laughs> I can't even. <laughs> on, on the, the computer, computer <laughs> on the, if you go on your computer and you go to the web, if you go to Twitter, which is a website uh, that you can find on the web, uh, and you search. At uh, Cam underscore Oflage, uh, you'll find me. Um, <laughs> or if I'm sure if you go to like the mentions of any of these three, uh, we'll probably be riffing on the 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 Virgin Tom and the and the Chad Greg or some <laughs> other such nonsense. Uh, at least once a week. Edge Lord Sh- Shiv and <laughs> oh, yeah, <God>. Edge Lord Shiv. <laughs> Absolutely, nice. throw a awesome. new batch Thank of memes together. So Back much, to the salt Cam. mines. Yeah, thanks, Cam. The most critical perspective thanks. of the show we've had so far. It's a little tough to hear at certain points, but... <laughs> I had to hear slander against Greg. I, I know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we've, I'm glad it picked up for you. And yeah, going into season two with high hopes. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's let's become hope a real podcast now because we've <laughs> talked about Twitter shit for <laughs> a bunch of it. It's true. Yeah, thanks well, so much. Thanks for coming into the Lions Den, Cam. Yeah, yeah. all right. See Bye. you in like five minutes in the group DM. <laughs>
<laughs> Love it. That's right. <laughs> All right, folks. All right, let's hope Kawhi stay. He stay. He stay. <laughs> All right, everybody. Peace. Hey, guys. Bye. Ciao. This is it, what? Lucini pouring from the sky, let's get rich, what? The Jiki finds the sugar dimes, can't quit, what? Now pop the caucus in the Vega and get lit, what? 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 Introducing Phantom of the Dark Walk through my heaven With levitation from reefers Drenching defense And these seven showboating with rugas Flash vines Belafonte bigger Let's get forward this work As we confiscate your figures Chasing over brown Levitating jiki And our shikis The lahada car 54 Chasing diamond runners Headed ice band The big chiller diamond Convention Harlem Buck strut Freezing world heights Hollywood Madam Butterfly Let me in your house A pleasure From the knuckle swatch Shadow boxes Catching black eye blue I play the thief What? Sensations at the Monte Gauri screaming Chiba Fulfilling pleasures in my castle Blow the smoke out The Goss of Vegas